Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on, as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Let's face it, race has always been an uncomfortable topic in any venue for most people in the United States. Intersecting topics of race and equity become even more taxing for most to dialogue about in the workplace. But here we are in May of 2021. And this month, of course, marks the tragic one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder and the avalanche of a social justice movement that rocked not only this country, but indeed the world. In an era where our collective attention to racial justice has been amplified as a result of, in part, being shuttered due to a global pandemic, it feels like the stories and images on television and on social media are more vivid and more imposing than ever before. So in a year that has been characterized by unavoidable racial reckonings for so many organizations, big and small, there has been a compelling case for them to communicate and fortify their commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion in such a way so that all their members feel valued and accepted, and for many reasons that transcend any moral imperative. As a result of these epiphanies, we have been seeing a spike in interest for diversity questionnaires. As more organizations seek to gauge their internal temperatures about DE&I and get an accurate sense of their respective cultures. Knowledge is power, of course, but let's also not forget that curiosity killed the cat. And I won't continue to pepper you with proverbs, but questionnaires of these sorts, as well-intended as they may be, come with their share of more than a few landmines of which organizations should at least be aware. So today, and on behalf of our interested listeners, I am taking the time to question those questionnaires. And to assist with this inquiry, I have with me Elisha Dotson, a trusted colleague of mine in our Seattle office where she is a shareholder. Elisha is a very busy member of our Diversity and Inclusion Service Solutions Group. Elisha, thank you for joining me in what I know will be an illuminating conversation for our listeners. Cindy Ann, it is my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me to chat with you about this hot topic that has been front and center for clients in all industries. Of course. So let's talk about these instruments, as we often call them in our field. I apologize in advance for the severely 
compound question that I'm about to ask. But what are they? Who do they go to? What are they designed to do? Ha, Cindy Ann, I do not blame you for the compound questions. <laughs> there is a lot to unpack here. So let's begin by breaking down the ways in which I see diversity questionnaires, sometimes called diversity surveys, crop up in the field. I've seen them break down into multiple categories. For example, a diversity survey formulated by the company and transmitted to the workforce requesting demographic information. A survey of this ilk might ask employees to identify their age, disability status, gender identity, or sexual orientation, and I've even seen one asking about an employee's pet ownership. <laughs> I call these demographic surveys not very creative, I know, but very descriptive. Employers tend to want to use such surveys to determine their own makeup. They want to know if they are sufficiently diverse and where in the organization that diversity resides. They might also want to gauge their internal diversity to decide which diversity initiatives might best suit them. If, for example, they lack diversity in their leadership ranks, but have strong diversity in the recruitment funnel, an employer might then decide that its short-term goals necessitate a focus on diversity initiatives to bolster retention versus recruitment. On the other hand, I also see diversity surveys in which employers ask their workforce more nuanced questions to gauge employee opinions about how the company is faring in the DE&I space. Mm -hmm. Such surveys might ask questions such as, do you feel like the company is doing a good job with diversity? Or do you think the company's promotion system is fair? Mm -hmm. A third form of such surveys is the hybrid that includes all of the questions we just discussed and many more. I hope I'm not letting the cat out of the bag here, but if you go no further than this spot in the podcast, dear listener, I want to inform you that all these surveys make me squirm. <laughs> Hang around and I'll tell you why. But for now, Cindy Ann, that's the most common avatar of these diversity questionnaires and their respective uses. Okay, so a few quick follow-up questions here, just to clarify a little on process. First, is it lawful to ask a potential candidate to provide this type of diversity information during the recruitment process? In general, I would advise against inquiring about a potential candidate's protected characteristics before hire. We can talk about why in just a few moments, but I see your face, Cindy Ann, and I see you have another question. I do. What about once they become an employee then? Yes, an employer that submits an EEO-1 form may, of course, secure that information from an employee after hire. But it's got to be completely voluntary, right? Absolutely. An employee's disclosure of protected characteristics, even on the EEO-1 form, should be entirely voluntary. What about characteristics that might be apparent from social media, Elisha? Such a great question, Cindy Ann. Some employers contemplate reviewing candidates' social media profiles to fill in the blanks. However, there is risk in such a practice. Once an employer reviews a candidate's online profile, 
a court will assume that they are aware of that person's protected characteristics that folks will often display on such media. These characteristics can include gender and race, most obviously, as well as those that are not always evident in a face-to-face -face interview. These include things such as religion, age, sexual orientation, gender identity, veteran status, or disability. If an employer intends to review social media as a part of its hiring practices, and again, there is some risk there, they might want to wait until after they've interviewed the candidate to do so. By using this tactic, an employer is less likely to be accused of relying on protected characteristics apparent in social media profiles to screen applicants. All in all, if you are an employer, you want to pursue such a practice with consistency and in a business-related manner. To the extent that employers conduct a social media background check, it is really better to have either a third party or a designated person within the company who does not make hiring decisions do the check. And then only use publicly available information and not request passwords for social media accounts. Okay, so let's drill down a little on substantive issues. Tell us about the questions that companies typically want to include in these instruments. So as we discussed briefly, employers want to know who is working for them. They want to know what those folks think about them. Surveys can be used to understand employee satisfaction and essentially strategize for employee recruitment and retention. Now, surely, learning more about the many intersections of a company's workforce's identities helps the company improve work culture, right? Yes. Well, then, why do you sound so pained? Because that just does not sound very convincing, <laughs> Elijah. Oh, Cindy Ann, where do I begin? Surveys of the nature we have been discussing can be problematic for various reasons. Let's take what I call demographic surveys first. In general, I advise employers not to ask their employees about protected characteristics that they are not otherwise put on notice of by the employee. Knowing such information, in some cases, is problematic, for example, under the ADA, where an employer should not be asking an employee about their disability status. Also, by exposing themselves to certain demographic information, an employer might essentially put itself on notice to initiate an interactive process. If, upon learning such information, the employer nevertheless fails to initiate such a process, it might be exposing itself to unnecessary liability. Mm -hmm. Also, what if someone identifies themselves as a member of the LGBTQA community within a survey, but is later and unrelatedly not selected for a promotion. Importantly, I like to remind my clients that raw data, friends, is not privileged. So an employer that collects demographic data and analyzes it under privilege, and it is the recommended practice to use a privileged analysis for any such review, 
well, this employer might nevertheless be compelled to share through discovery that raw data with a government agency. Now, that's my concern related to demographic surveys. And some of that certainly applies to diversity surveys. However, another concern with diversity surveys is that an employer is again asking its workforce for their unsubstantiated opinions about the company's diversity efforts. Elisha, you have done a remarkable job of outlining some of the things that clearly keep you up at night about these instruments. And I am a little hesitant to ask <laughs> whether or not you have any other concerns. I am a girl that has a great many concerns, Cindy Ann, <laughs> and here are a few others. I have noticed a proliferation of non-attorney consultants in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And while several such consultants do great and important work, I also want to flag for employers that those who are conducting diversity analyses without privilege and then publishing such data, both internally and externally to all and sundry, might be creating potential uh, liability for employers. So that's an important one. You mentioned that you had a few other concerns. Go ahead. I do, I do. Uh, the other one is the nature of the questions themselves. For example, overly intrusive questions. For example, do you think the company's promotion policy is fair and transparent? Well, mm. you are going to get an answer to both, but how are you going to be able to parse between them? I've seen situations in which employees answering that question respond in the negative. They do not think the company's policies are fair and transparent. But on the flip side of that survey, it is impossible to determine if it's the transparency of the process that gives them pause or the fairness. And therefore, the question is both intrusive and not particularly helpful to the employer's ultimate needs. What happens when companies go rogue, Elisha? You and I have talked about that. Oh, indeed we have. And I have certainly seen employers go rogue and publish diversity demographics and quotas even on their website. In addition to acknowledging on their website that discrimination or iniquity exists within their ranks, often employers are doing this without checking with legal or their parent company. And so I caution employers because this is a tangled ball of yarn to untangle, that they reach out to legal, that they speak to their parent company before publishing any demographic data or committing to any demographic aspirational goals. So, Elisha, now that you have scared our listeners with a good eight to 10 concerns that you have, and they are significant, to be sure, what do you do when a company is simply determined to get these questionnaires out to their members and notwithstanding these kinds of issues that you've just highlighted for us? What kinds of guardrails can help blunt the potential pain points, if you will? Cindy Ann, there are various reasons an employer is sometimes compelled to engage in such surveys. I've seen it done 
where tradition is at play, or mm. perhaps a clamor from the workforce requiring such surveys and demanding such information. In other instances, it has been required of the employer due to their investors having certain requirements as to diversity, equity, and inclusion data. If you are an employer and you find yourself in such a conundrum, don't despair. Reach out to a council, whether it's at Littler or otherwise, to help you delicately tool these questions, Cindy Ann. Right. Listen, for multinational companies who are attempting to collect this kind of data, are there different kinds of risks that business leaders need to keep in mind? Absolutely. So I tend to speak from the perspective of a U.S. barred attorney. However, I am very aware of the GDPR as well as other countries' laws that place different demands and limitations upon how an employer can collect, retain, and use personnel information. This includes things like the names, the genders, the addresses, even email or physical of your workforce. And so I caution you, if you do indeed have a global reach, to reach out to counsel in all these different jurisdictions, but do so before ever collecting uh, such information. And to these folks, I say, Cindy Ann, I say preparation is the key. Mm-hmm. What if the personal data that you're collecting from employees is completely anonymized? Oh, my gosh. Uh, That is both a uh, sword and a shield. It it is helpful if such information, if it must be collected, is anonymized, because then one might say it's less likely for information to be adversely um, used as evidence. So, for example... If you collect information about your workforce, but later have an employee claim that their LGBTQ plus status was used against them in a subsequent employment decision, it's easier for an employer to claim no nexus where they're able to show that the demographic data was anonymously collected and secured. On the other hand, an employer that collects anonymous information might be less able to act when they need to do so. For example, an employer that asks whether employees feel like they were being treated differently on the basis of a protected characteristic in hiring or promotion decisions when they receive negative information cannot really drill down or delve into the issue and properly conduct an internal investigation that they might be required to do when the data is entirely anonymized. So, While anonymous data might be a way to encourage employees to respond to such surveys, it can also be vastly problematic. Interesting. Has the EEOC or have the courts weighed in on any of this, Alicia? So the EEOC and the courts have not yet weighed in on demographic surveys or questionnaires or indeed on diversity surveys in general. But I do like to remind employers that employment laws like Title VII and the employment law guidance that you have received throughout your careers has not changed. So keep those foundational principles in mind, including privilege, and that will keep you in good stead. Helpful. I want to switch gears for a moment. 
DE&I engagement during distress with all of the other monumental events going on in this space in recent years can be exhausting. And I've gotten a sense that we are possibly seeing more activity in this area due to our pandemic-driven new normal of virtual work environments and the perceived needs of business leaders to compensate for the inability to connect with people meaningfully and or in person. Fair? You're so right, Cindy Ann. This is, after all, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And we have been seeing this need growing with each subsequent movement that we have become familiar with, whether it be the hashtag MeToo movement of a few years ago, the BLM movement that came to resurgence last year and continues to go strong, whether it be in response to AAPI violence or with regards to anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. Mm -hmm. Organizations are trying to do more. They are trying to be aware. And we appreciate that employers want to know what their employees are thinking. But here's my philosophy. As an attorney of color, I want more than anything for diversity, equity, and inclusion to succeed. But here's what I really want. I want it to be sustainable in the long term. If we trip over diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and initiate them in a haphazard manner in the short term, we will burn corporate America in such a way that they will not be sustainable 10, 15, and 20 years from now, and we will not see the fruits of this process in the way that we truly need to see it come to fruition. Agreed. Listen, you and I have had so many opportunities in the past year to talk about the ways in which the pandemic is slated to be more severe, and not just in the short term, but in the long term for women, single parents of either gender, the differently abled and people of color, just to name a few. So, you know, COVID-19 has really heightened the existing challenges that organizations face in this space. And I know that it is weighing heavily on business leaders' minds. I, I just wonder if there is any way in which diversity questionnaires crafted and administered flawlessly uh, can assist employers on this front. So I do think that there is space for demographic analyses as well as diversity analyses done under privilege. While I continue to shy away from the concept of a survey uh, or a questionnaire, I do recommend to employers the possibility of a statistical analysis that is conducted under privilege. Mm -hmm. Another great tool in this space is for business leaders to consider comparing their demographics to other employers in their region and in their industry. And this too can be done under privilege and using the EEO's new data tool. These are other great tools that can supplement and complement this internal analysis. Right. So besides the obvious obligation of making sure that they consult counsel before 
developing and implementing any of these types of inquiries that you outlined, can you give us some kind of a flowchart for what a company can do to best minimize legal risk and going down these paths that you outlined for us, Elijah? Sinian, thank you for asking me about this. I want to give employers tools and not just take them away. Here's how I think about it. Surveys are an ax, but forums or focus groups and courageous conversations can be a scaffold. You can get much of the information that you need through these avenues. So, for example, an employer can launch focus groups to ask their employees really targeted questions uh, during very small, intimate gatherings of just 10 or 15 people. And after you conduct these focus groups on a cross-section of your workforce, and I should say that these focus groups should always be voluntary because you never want to make it mandatory for members of your workforce to speak about race or any other mm -hmm. sensitive yes. issue. Mm -hmm. These focus groups can garner much of the same information and feedback as a diversity questionnaire might have done. So on that point, Elisha, what about a climate assessment? Talk to us about that. Indeed, a climate assessment, and again, this would be another tool that you would like to conduct under privilege, so it would be conducted by council ideally, is an avenue to conduct uh, an analysis of your past investigations into your organization. For example, maybe review your policies in great detail and see where there is space for growth. Council could even conduct interviews of various targeted individuals throughout the organization to see what the needs of the organization might be and where there is further space for growth. And built in to your climate assessment would be perhaps a series of focus groups or courageous conversations. This climate assessment would then result in a report of which the C-suite would be made aware in great detail, but the action items from which could percolate out to the greater workforce and the public, thereby giving the company the benefit of privilege and internal analyses and simultaneously giving you avenues for growth in the diversity, equity, and inclusion sphere. As you know, I'm notorious for demanding solutions in my podcasts, and you've done exactly that. So I appreciate those variations and those explanations of how to conduct these questionnaires. Elisha, my learned colleague from our Littler office in Seattle, where she is a shareholder and a dedicated practitioner in the DEI space. Elisha Dotson, thank you for taking the time to dialogue around this important issue with me. Thank you for having me, Cindy Ann. It has been my pleasure. No, it has been mine. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. 
The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.